Today on the playground, I'm going to share some stories about my patient lens. The lens of being a patient in a space that I thought I would probably never play in myself. My hope for the next few episodes is to open the conversation and connect to people living with mental illness and those who love, support, teach, counsel, parent, and know people. Because we have become exceptional navigators of systems and places and people that we want to protect. Many people who love and know me will not have heard this side of the story. There are so many reasons that our mental health does not become dinner talk or shared among friends. People still worry that if people know, they will see them and treat them differently and less than. My hope is that by telling the story, people will realize the incredible struggle met with incredible strength that it takes to share something that has been hidden in many family closets, tucked away and not spoken of, laughed off at work, and is still hidden in more places than I can consider. I will start this story with a spoiler, though. I found my strength and my drive to play in my darkest spaces. It took me a long time to realize where that was, but now I get to share how important it is to find the things that give you your play when you feel that you have no play left. Grab a cup of tea and know the landscape of most people is larger than the one you see in front of you. In the show notes today, I've included phone numbers and text lines that can connect you to international mental health resources and crisis lines. Please don't hesitate to share them with friends and family and workplace colleagues and for yourself. This is the first part of a four-part series on playing for a change called The Patient Lens. So I'm unsure of the time, but I I feel like I've been awake for days. And it it wouldn't really matter anyways. Here I am. I'm on the arm of an emergency services attendant in the admissions chair of a place I thought I would never be. In fact, it's even a place in care that we wouldn't talk about with people, except in jokes. It's a place, actually, we only joke about in social spaces in reference to the wrong place to turn on the highway. This institution has become a space of fear and irony for many people. So when we were told, we're taking her to Pinoca, for me, those words foundationally were the end of something for me. So I I sit and I wait as people kind of rush by and it's like watching a slow motion movie. And everyone passes by without recognizing or seeing the depth of this blackness that I am in. Because in this space, the blackness is actually where many people are. I failed. I I failed my kids. I failed my marriage. And I failed at my job. And I'm sitting in emergency in the hospital for what seems like days. Although at this point, I'm probably prone to exaggeration. I wish I could find some humor in the fact that someone wants to take a picture of me for their records. 
at what feels like the lowest point in my existence. My hope is that someday, if I get to look back at that picture, it will remind me of this moment and I will laugh. Committed. Me. And for so long, I thought I was committed. A committed parent, a committed wife, an incredibly committed teacher, an athlete, a daughter, every other label I've ever worn. And now I'm committed. Like I said, I hope the picture in the statement will be humorous someday because the irony is a little deep right now. Okay, they've explained my rights. It seems to me also ironic that as according to you, I have no capability of exercising any of these rights after you have signed this piece of paper. So you actually had me sign a form that said I have no rights. Irony lost. Interesting that they see me as agitated with increased motor activity, and I I know this because I've requested the records back. Some of this is gone for me, so when I requested the records back, I got to see what nurses and doctors were writing about me at the time and compare that to how I felt. So they suggested that I was agitated. I would say that was probably correct. I recognize that they've asked me questions about how I feel and what I enjoy and and what I want to do. And I hope that they realize that I have no connection to that discussion right now. It's dark outside and I sit feeling slightly humiliated by the fact that I had to be transported by ambulance 25 minutes down the highway from my house. I'm asked to read and sign a contract of self-care, which actually seems funny considering that I just signed another contract that says I can't sign contracts. So I'm handed a form that looks overcopied and worn out and states, I understand that in attending programs within psychiatry, I accept responsibility for planning and implementing and evaluating my care and that I commit myself to work on goals and concerns in my care plan. I'm responsible for attending groups and activities and appointments as outlined in my program. I agree that I'm in control of my own behavior and that if I have impulses to harm myself or property other than my own, I agree to talk to a staff member to find a way to control my behavior. If I harm property or person, including myself, I am aware that appropriate consequences will follow. Welcome to the loony bin. No, it didn't say that, but it sure should have. They seem to put me in a lot of responsible position at this point when I feel less than responsible. So just to be sure that I read the contract and that I'll follow through, A nurse searches my possessions again to be sure I don't have anything I could harm myself with, which at this point seems like a fairly extensive list, considering you asked me if I abuse water. So goodbye to the laces in my running shoes and my purse and my necklace, and I'm not wearing much of anything else as my obsessive cleaning behavior and sadness has forced me into a closed closet full of yoga pants and old t-shirts. The nurse hands me a set of medical pajamas as I didn't really come prepared to stay. It's funny how pictures in our head of the places that we fear and laugh at in quiet spaces become reality. So my reality is this. I'm walking down a hallway on a ward in a psychiatric hospital in what seems like the middle of the night, and the lights are dimmed, and yet I can hear screaming come from the lighted room at the end of the hallway. And I can only describe this screaming of both someone angry and in pain. All right, I've been awake for more than 36 hours. I'm used to having my meds to sleep, and the nurse relates to me that they haven't filled my prescriptions yet, 
Let me tell you about anxiety and how it works in the face of fear and humiliation and lack of sleep. Not well. So here's where I expect that I will get a room to stay in until we sort out that I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) I understand we all make mistakes. However, I know that tomorrow morning someone's going to tell me that college professors are not intended to be in asylums with crazy people. I am escorted to a large room with three beds where the nurse pulls a curtain to separate a middle space from the other's ladies' room. I think it's probably the appropriate time to tell you this is my first. Are you kidding me? Do you ever play anymore? Do you ever have fun anymore? Come out, come out, come out, come out and play with me. And that comes to the surface. The nurse informs me that I have a locker beside my roommates and I inform her I won't be here long enough to need a locker at which time I also request a private bathroom, which I'm sure my health care covers. I'm informed this is my bed and also informed there are no other rooms in the inn. Did I mention anxiety? This is where I'm supposed to get better? The nurse explains sometime in the morning I'll be able to see a doctor and express my concerns. <laughs> then I'm told to get some rest. Hmm, let's see. Let me set this up for you. Asylum, room with two obviously very sick ladies on either side of me, security guard posted at my bedside hospital pajamas and rest it's at this point that the screaming in the hallway intensifies and i can't tell whether it's coming from one side or the other or it's getting closer to me please god don't let that be coming in here did that lady sign the contract because she is causing me harm with that noise sadness overcomes me and i start to sob underneath my covers which seem unsubstantial and sanitary. I feel so alone. I am so scared and I just want to die. I feel as though I have become my own worst fear. I am a burden to my family and my friends and I struggle to keep some perspective around the value of my life. It doesn't seem long before some kind of strange daily routine starts to occur on the ward. The woman on my left seems to get ready for a day almost like there's something to look forward to. And my angry and sarcastic self comes forward with this feeling of pity for this very sick woman. She looks at me with kind of a distrust and I wonder if she knows who I really am and that I don't obviously belong in this space. I assume she knows. The guard at the end of my bed is relieved and I mean that in the nicest way, by the morning nurse who suggests that I must be hungry. If this is a hospital, then I'll expect my food tray to be here anytime. But that isn't the case. In fact, everybody here gets up and has breakfast around eight and prepares for a day of unequaled fulfillment and fun. But not me. I don't line up for breakfast. And I tell the nurse that exactly. I'm not hungry, and the anxiety that I have about entering a room full of mentally ill people and having a casual breakfast, maybe engaging in some casual conversation about my arrival last night, makes me almost sick to my stomach. And again, the irony, because what have I just spent my career teaching humanity and equality, and we're all the same, and 
and it's okay to be different, and I can't live it right now. The nurse leaves me with a sure sense of she'll eat when she's hungry, and this infuriates me in a way I can't explain. Must be dignity. Not two minutes later, another nurse tells me that because of the long weekend, I'll have to wait another day to see the doctor. So the answer to the question, when the hell do I get out of here, seems at least 24 hours away. A kind nurse comes in to ask if I want to talk. This is another new person, and I'm unsure of what I really want at all. So I just cry because that's the emotion. I'm hurt. Scared and hopeless. And that is the end of every sentence for me. I explain how I believe that I will only be here for a very short time and that I'm on the list for a bed in the hospital in my hometown. I want and need to sleep so badly, but my anxiety and lack of proper medications will not allow me to rest. She assures me that people on the ward are here to help and hands me. A welcome to the ward letter. Wow, you really have this down to a science. A welcome letter, like the ones you get in fancy hotels. Welcome to hell. We hope you enjoy your stay. If there's anything we can do to help, please don't hesitate to contact us. And my sarcasm overwhelms me. Sometime during this day, my husband comes to see me. However, he's not allowed on the ward. They designate a meeting room for us to talk in. He is welcomed through locked doors, and a security guard and nurse accompanies me to the family room. Where my husband has brought clothes and toiletries, the guard searches through everything, removes a nail file and some clippers, returning them, because yes, I would see where you wouldn't want those things fall in the wrong hands here. I also seem to have no answers, and no one seems to be connecting with me about what will happen from here. I'm not even sure what to say as both my shame and guilt overwhelm me. And after this visit, I return to my room and I cry for so long that my head pounds and my face is swollen with tears. And I understand in this moment why they take everything away. Because I realize that the temptation to be without this pain is more than tempting. It is echoing in every breath I take. Again, a nurse comes in and inquires about eating, and I suggest I am unable to eat with the other patients in the dining room. I'm sure this seems arrogant and self-centered, but I don't care. It's almost for me as if giving into this little bit of institutionalization will increase the chance that I will stay. At times, I wish I didn't have any experience or education in the field of disability or understanding person first, or kindness, or connection, as I feel none of those right now. And I feel bad that I don't feel bad. I've returned to my room after asking about the possibility for pain medication, as my head is pounding. And I'm unsure if this is medication-related, or stress-related, or connection to the depth of the hole I feel I will never crawl out of. But the nurse asks about a pain scale, and I realize... I have very little connection to how much pain I am feeling right now, or how lost, or how scared, and I break down at the nursing station, sobbing and inconsolable. I go back to my room and 
crawl under what they call covers, and I realized that some of the day must be gone as the sun is starting to go down and the misfits head in for dinner. I will never do this. I attempt to sleep, but the rest of my room is quite awake, and I'm not in control of the lights or the quiet. Outside in the hallways, there seems to be a constant hum of talking, mixed with yelling and screaming. The nurses suggest I write down any questions that I'll have for the doctors tomorrow, so I start that list. Looks like this. When can I leave and why am I here? Friday night, they made a mistake on my medications and didn't have the correct ones. How can I trust that they have the right meds or answers to what is going on for me? When you're sick, you're not in control. And if someone is making mistakes, you can imagine how unsettling this might be. Who is actually in charge? One person says I can use my cell phone. The other one says I can't. The words settle in suggest a long stay, and it makes me anxious to settle in to this like it's going to be my normal life for a long time. Because it's not. It's then time for medication, and a nurse comes in to tell me that I will have to come to the desk to get it. Does the lining up ever end? I do want my medication. In fact, I'm driven towards the relief it might give me. So I line up for the first time. Do you ever play anymore? Do you ever have fun anymore? Come out, come out, come out, come out and play with me. I am unfortunately not the first in line, and I will come to realize that this privilege is not worth the fight. In the line ahead of me is a woman cuddling a bear who looks harmless enough until someone brushes up against her and she swipes back in anger and fear and the attendant removes her. One less in line. The two gentlemen in line ahead of me are now swapping stories about stab wounds to the chest and how they survived. And many others seem highly medicated and drowsy. And my room is looking better all the time. At night, after medication, there is snack. It's laid out on a table, and I realize I'm hungry. When I return to my room, both curtains are closed, and I close mine as well. Tonight, I have my own pajamas, and I think there will be some relief in wearing my own clothes. But they make me feel empty as I think about where I'm supposed to be at this moment in my life. I should be tucking my kids in bed. I should be thinking about my lectures for tomorrow. I should be putting away the dishes and getting ready for breakfast and making lunches. This thought overwhelms me, and I must fall asleep at this point out of exhaustion. Well, it's Monday morning, and breakfast here begins at 8.45 a.m. I found a way to get whatever is left at 8.43. Inhale it and make no connection whatsoever to the inmates in the breakfast space. I'm told the doctor will meet with me on his rounds this morning, and I'm hopeful we'll solve these issues about medication and transfer me back to a real hospital. I've yet to be administered the medications that I'm used to taking, as the prescriptions seem to not have transferred from my pharmacy. I'm not sure how this works in the health system, because it feels to me that these are the kinds of things we take care of. I also realize that I've been skipping ahead in my blister packaging to the next day's sleeping medication in order to find some relief at night. At home, I was probably taking double the sleeping medication in order to find relief 
from anxiety and my depression. And I'm not at this time in control of any of my medications. And I realize I've become highly dependent on those for relief. The doctor and a team of professionals await me in the interview room. And I hope I wasn't supposed to bring a resume because that's what it feels like. And all the questions that I believe I have already answered, I answer all over again. I'm 35 years old. I'm the mother of two beautiful girls. I'm a college professor. And I use this because I want them to be sure to know that I am educated and professional and I hold a title. I have encountered depression and anxiety most of my life and have been medicated and under the care of a psychiatrist since I was 17 years old. After having my first daughter, I experienced postpartum depression, blah, 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 blah. I've been off work on reduced workload in the past because of my depression and anxiety. In September of this year, I've struggled to maintain a full workload as I've struggled immensely with both my short and long-term memory Lectures that I have done for the past five years I'm having to work on as I don't recall the meaning of my notes or the research with which I produce my lectures. This cognitive decline has also affected my ability to speak in class and my ability to teach. And I've taken a reduced workload and I'm still working eight to ten hours a day to try and keep up. In addressing this with the doctors before today, I asked if it was possible that the medications I was taking have any effect on my ability to process information? And the answer seems to be no every time. Even though I'm taking over seven medications, helping me manage my day. In fact, the reasoning that I get is that behind my cognitive decline is actually the consistency of my depressive illness has reduced the size of my ability and work of the hypothalamus in my brain to function properly. Now, I'm not an anatomy major by any sense, but to me, that's brain damage caused by a consistent illness. So we change medications. And again, I wait to see if the change can affect the illness or my ability to maintain my job. It's important to tell you here that the importance of my teaching to who I am and who I identify myself is, is central to what used to feel like my happiness. And it's the one thing that made me feel like I was important, respected, smart, and whole. And it is slipping out of my hands daily. I'm sure that in an attempt to control my world, I've taken on this newly acquired obsessive, compulsive work with keeping my house clean. In fact, there's been days when I've been unable to go to work as I feel that it's possible the house requires my attention. The cleaning becomes an overwhelming part of my day and And often I will come home from work and clean until exhaustion sets in. It's important that you realize at this point that this organized cleanliness is not a natural component of my personality. It does, however, satisfy those around me to have an incredibly clean house and all of their laundry done for the first time ever. Do you ever play? At some point, I decide as an academic professional, I should seek an opinion on this cognitive decline. And so, like a good scholar, I I go to the psychology department of our local college. 
I take several memory, intellect, and cognitive tests. And at the end of this testing, it's clear that my memory and recall are being compromised in some way in comparison to my age and education. It suggested that the medications I am taking may have an effect on this testing or that the effect of increased cortisol could actually be causing some of this loss. And when I share these results with my psychiatrist, he agrees that the results are probably very accurate. But it is his opinion that the medications I am taking are not causing this lack of cognitive connection. In January, I find myself fully consumed by both depression and anxiety, and I'm unable to work. I've taken on more administrative duties and taken my self out of the classroom I love. In no way do I want to compromise the learning from my students. And I have stepped away, and I feel like a part of me died. In continuing to give this history to this interview team, I talk about the fact that after the kids go to daycare and school, I found myself on the floor of the kitchen scrubbing the grout with bleach. And I call a friend who lives close and I say, I can't stop cleaning. To which she replies, you need to give yourself a break and relax. The house is fine. It's after this phone call that I start to call for help. When I phone my psychiatrist, he insists that if I am not feeling safe, I should go to emergency. And it is this question and his if that makes me collapse onto the floor in pain. It's as if someone has just said to me, stop being silly and get your head out of your ass. And I realized for the first time that as much as I would like to get my head out of my ass, I don't feel in control of it. My next calls are to the local mental health unit where they suggest the same thing. That emergency is where I should be seen and I'm sitting on my bed flipping through the yellow pages trying to find a helpline and the words are blurred and I can't seem to locate the number for the service. I know it's right there. It's been there a million times before and I can't find it. And I break down and I go to emergency. And here I am after two trips to the emergency The humiliation of admitting I'm not strong enough, good enough to keep going. And if that isn't bad enough, my husband also has to admit that he cannot keep me safe. The emergency doctors have told me that I can't be admitted at the local hospital because my psychiatrist does not have admitting privileges. And I am on an island. Because of my multiple calls to try and seek help within the space of my community, The calls to my own psychiatrist and the emergency doctor. The doctor enters the room in emergency and says, well, after multiple calls and pages, I'm here. Frustrated and short with me with what seems to be the problem. I explained that we were here in emergency two days ago and that my anxiety and depressive state has gotten worse to the point where I am not in control. And I try to explain something rationally in some coordinated way with this person in this most irrational space I've ever found myself in. I think I am attempting to not sound crazy in between sobbing and exhaustion. It's like when you're drunk and you're trying to pretend that you're totally sober, but you know you're still drunk. So I'm sure this is ineffective. We have come prepared that I might have to stay a night as they told us they would try and find me a bed. This very abrupt emergency doctor explains this is not the case. His only option at this point is to sign commitment papers and send me to the ward. He 
He explains this to me in a way that demeans any source of intelligence, and I sign the papers. So now I'm in the system, he explains, and I have no rights and no choices from this moment forward. And somehow he believes that he can talk me out of depression and he can talk me into wellness. That didn't work. In order to be completely committed, two doctors have to agree to the stipulations on the Form 1. The second doctor will do this after the examination on the ward. I've been sent by ambulance 25 minutes down the road to a place I never expected myself to be and or anyone remotely associated with me to ever have to go. And here I am, a team of experts surrounding the table, including my new psychiatrist, occupational therapist, recreational therapist, group coordinators, a pharmacist, ward coordinators and nurses, You can imagine how comforting it is to be in a room full of strangers who are asking questions about the most personal and heart-wrenching parts of your life. When I explain that I believe I will be transferred back to my hometown local hospital, the team suggests I will be staying with them for longer than I had assumed. I explain there is very little room for me to feel healthy in this space, and they assure me they will do their best to accommodate my recovery. We are going to change medications, reduce medications, increase medications, and this apparently is the safest environment to do that in. I'm assuming this because the worn out piece of paper that I signed suggested that I won't harm myself here, which is what keeps them so assured. It is suggested the following day I start an adult inpatient program, workshop schedule, where I will go and learn skills in group therapy for following coping with depression, anxiety, assertiveness, stress management, relaxation techniques, self-concept, and anger management. I'm just wondering when the humiliation ends. I feel resentful that someone wants me at this point in time to share anything or listen to others relate their problems in a group setting. This is the end of the meeting. And I go back to my room, and as I pass through the common area, individuals who were not allowed off the ward today have collected in some sort of social gathering of misfits. I walk past, and the nurse asks how my session went. What is probably paranoid but true for me at the moment is that I assume she knows the answer was, they're going to keep me here. So I ignore her, and I proceed back to my room. It is at this time that I collapse onto a bed that I know they have checked. And all I want to do is fall asleep forever. But this is not how things work on the ward. Two minutes later, a nurse comes in and suggests that having a shower and getting dressed might feel good. And I suggest that she is incorrect in the nicest words that I can find. I just want to sleep. And my head is pounding. You are not, however, allowed to stay in bed all day. Not here on the ward. And at this point, I'm not allowed off the ward without an escort. And I have very little interest in lunch or the collection of misfits down the hallway. So I opt for the shower. I'm considering that it might be quiet and warm and somewhat relaxing. (laughs) However, this is not the case, as I'm not allowed to lock the shower door. The nurse accompanies me into the shower where I'm only allowed my soap and shampoo, and she watches through the curtain. I can't tell you how this is not my ultimate relaxing shower experience. I proceed back to my room and explain to her that I'm going to write for a little while and I ask permission to stay in bed. She must at this point allow me to stay because I do have several books of notes 
from my time here on the ward. My roommate and savior of the MP3 player comes over to my bed, and she is excited today as she's hoping to be discharged. She's been on the ward for the second time in two years and has recently been here four months. She suggests following protocols, going to groups, and that I will survive this difficult time. She gives me an overview of the nurses and the attendants, who to trust and who to avoid and who not to piss off. She is real, and I appreciate her abrupt honesty. Just as we are completing this conversation, a sheer sheer scream comes over the ward, and nurses and attendants run from every room down the hallway. We watch from our room as this patient in obvious distress and what sounds like pain is escorted. And when I say escorted, I mean three attendants have her completely physically restrained down the hallway to the end where I have not been yet. Wynne suggests I ignore this and that the patient is often in the blue room. She explains that in the blue room, the walls and floor are completely padded, so you're incapable of hurting yourself or others. She also suggests that visiting the blue room will not be in my best interest. And I write, The nursing notes suggest, at this time, the following. Approached writer requesting to eat dinner in day room, encouraged to eat in dining hall. Patient agreeable to same, stating she would wait until the dining hall was clear and there are no people in sight. Writer went into dining hall with patient as she was visibly shaking, talking through her time to ease her discomfort. Only took a piece of bread and butter, but before leaving kitchen asked to get her snack out of the fridge an apple and celery to eat in her room. Blunted affect, speech soft and slightly delayed, appears apprehensive as patient holds her arms and hands up to her chest or crossed in front of her. Two hours later, nursing notes say the following. One-on-one with writer, expressed many concerns, afraid of being institutionalized and becoming a number, worried about her career, states She is having a cognitive decline. What used to take her one hour now takes her four. Feel support are friends whom she can call, encouraged to do same, reassurance given about being a number and that we are client-centered care. Ate snack in TV room. This night I'm awake for most of the time as my head pounds and I'm sure I'm suffering from some type of withdrawal. It's been two days since I've had what I feel is the correct dosage of my medications, and looking back at this moment, I realize that I've come to be very dependent on those medications. The nurse enters my room about 1.30 in the morning and suggests if I had the right dose of a certain medication, I might be able to get some rest. She insists that the doctor has not made a request for this and that I should use my coping skills to try and get some sleep. But if you've never sat in the shoes that I'm sitting in, it's probably difficult to understand that the very practical coping skills that you're trying to teach feel as though they are making me more anxious because I can't seem to do what you ask and I feel like a child being punished when I don't. When you make it sound easy, I feel like I am failing you. Do you ever play anymore? A couple 
couple of hours later, my best friend comes to visit me. They allow me to sit outside the doors and in a kind of normal space. So the discomfort of locked doors and nurses and illness are behind us. We talk and she apologizes for something she could not see but believes she should have. No forgiveness required. She fears for me here, and I, I try to alleviate her fears with the thought that I will probably be transferred in the next couple of days back to a normal hospital, and that this mistake will be corrected. She holds me like I might fall apart if she lets go, and I'm not sure she isn't right, but I do let her go, and I reassure her that I am fine. I start to realize the walls that people have to climb to come and see me in this place, so many fears, like, what if someone thinks I'm the one who's here? And what if they get out? And what if someone sees me? How will I explain? And, and through all the glass and brightly lit hallways and well-positioned plants, there are still locked doors and scary places along the way. I return to my room. Empty. Call for medications comes at 8 p.m. And I hoped... That would be enough to quiet the screaming in my head. It's a repetitive call. It's a voice that says, this is your fault. Stop being an idiot. This isn't real. There are people who are really sick here. Get yourself out of here. Look what you've done. What a disappointment. What a failure. The next morning's nursing notes say the following. Patient presents downcast in effect, avoiding areas of the unit with numerous people. States, at the college I can manage crowds better because it's familiar and safe. Keeps to herself only engaging in conversations to have needs met. Requests given for hot pack and ibuprofen. The next day we're starting group therapy. And I don't know if I can express to you how frightened and angry I was about having to go to these groups in the first place. What the hell was I going to do in anger management? I'm not angry. The nurse at the front of this group, and there are five of us in the room, one of the patients can hardly keep his head up and his mouth sags open for most of the time. The nurse reassures him that his body will get used to new medications and he'll feel better soon. I'm reminded of a moment from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I try to get that image out of my head as fast as it enters. Today's topic is stop self-destructive anger responses and a questionnaire. I have no idea what this is, but I was asked to fill it out. So on a scale of one to five, one being never true and five being always true, I'm doing okay, I guess. I don't shoplift or gamble compulsively, not anorexic, and I don't ignore authority. My fours and fives sit in a need for perfection, keeping silent and not letting others know how I feel. Excessive cleanliness, chronic nagging, setting up situations to ensure a constant state of crisis, procrastinating and giving the powers to others to intimidate me and ignoring warning signs and symptoms of an illness. So I guess perfect is off the list. So we start to discuss what causes me to act self-destructively, irrational thinking and responses, to anger and I throw passive aggressive check marks next to each of the pieces on the list. When I hold my anger instead of expressing it in a healthy way, I end up acting in self-destructive ways because I, hmm, number one, feel resentment. Two, 
I have a chip on my shoulder. Three, hold grudges. Four, bitter and disappointed. Five, feel like giving up. As a teacher myself, I'm sure that there is a six, all of the above, but I don't. Okay, I have some anger. I wouldn't have labeled it as anger, and maybe I wouldn't have labeled it at all. So we chase it around the table, and yes, we all have stuff, not surprising, considering our location at the moment. I don't talk as much as I don't want to seem like an involved member of this circus, but for a moment I have to admit it feels good to know someone is listening who gets it. We get a 30-minute break before the next session, and because I'm still under observation, I have to remain in the room. I look over the handouts and get ready for the next session on assertiveness. The topic today is idealism. This is defined as holding on to a set of beliefs which are rigid. In a system, thinking about life as it's supposed to be or should be. Hmm. Okay, I will stay, even though I don't have a choice. We start to discuss how disabling it can be to constantly see the world as a place you feel inclined to fix or control. And that resonates for me, even in my teaching career. I consistently seem to try to make sure everyone is happy and control how they perceive me and my instruction. So I stay, even though I don't have a choice. I start to read through the handout on control issues, and I see statements like, If you continue to be overly idealistic, then you could find it difficult to fully accept anyone the way they really are and chronically attempt to control them so that they become the way they should ideally be. As disengaged as I feel at this point in time, I realize that some of the central struggles I'm having are about idealism. One of the group members expresses the attempt to try and fit into all the ideal puzzle pieces that are expected of her. The piece that looks like a great homemaker and a caring neighborhood friend, as well as a perfect mom who walks her kids to school and has a homemade snack waiting at the door. The piece that is the co-worker who always fills in when necessary and remembers everyone's birthday and is a shoulder to lean on. The piece that is the happy social wife who invites her husband's business clients for dinner and drinks without blinking an eye. She does all this, however, at a cost to her own health. And she makes it all work until the noise in her head gets so loud that she can't block out the voices. The medication makes her feel tired and sick and all of a sudden she is late for work. The teachers are sending notes from school about the kids' behavior and that beautiful home. It's a mess. So she self-medicates and mixes and changes doses and misses appointments. And all of a sudden, she's here. I recognize that at times this sense of idealism consumes me. I don't even realize the effect of having disappointed so many pieces of my puzzle and what that has done to my health. I'm sitting in this room today full of people and antipsychotic medications and antidepressants, and I realize that I try to control how others see me and perceive me. And the thought of not pulling my weight or not working hard or being the troublemaker, princess, and pleading and begging sometimes, even silently for the approval of people, and that that is unachievable. At the end of the sessions, I 
I stay to talk to the nurses. I feel a need or want to explain myself and, and who I am. We sit face to face and I explain where I've come from and, and who I am and how lost I feel in this space and how empty and how frightened I feel that I am one of these people. The nurse reminds me that I am still smart, educated, valuable, hardworking, and that the part of me that is all those things is not lost. There is a college professor and a good mom still inside this person with an illness. It is one of the first moments that I feel like someone has said, not all of the madness is your fault. I cry so hard that I believe I might collapse into a pool of my own tears and and I want to believe this nurse more than anything. And at some time, I want to believe again that I am all those things. Smart, dynamic, funny, engaging, great mom, great teacher, supportive, loving, caring, willing to take on the world. Oh yeah, idealism. Lesson of the day. This is the first person on the ward who has said to me, you are valued and you are valuable. It seems like an incredible amount of time since I have heard those words and I'm escorted back to my room. In group today, there's only five of us. Four of us are regulars and a new girl who was just admitted yesterday. The first group this morning is on depression and anxiety, and I have come to see the importance of sharing at least a little of myself in these sessions. One of the patients introduces herself to the group and tells a story of a young mother who has at times suffered from anxiety and depression. She tells us that whenever she feels like she needs a two-week break, she goes to her doctor claiming suicidal thoughts and they readmit her for two weeks. So she chooses commitment over life. And I realize that is a scary thing on the ward because the ward can become a crutch to reality. For the fourth day in a row, one of the gentlemen does not speak during our sessions and struggles to get any assemblance of thought together. The group leader suggests that medication can sometimes have this effect and they will feel better as time goes forward. I realize now that the medications we are playing with in this place can can change us in so many ways. I, I see myself as this very competent professional who is not confident because of her illness and because of the effect that her medications have on her ability to teach. And I stumble through this session. It's, it's difficult to hear the anger and hurt of others in the team. And the team leads suggest it's okay to be angry and it, it's okay to be sad, but we have to recognize why. I still feel frightened to accept the why. And, and for the first time, I actually don't know if I feel that it's a complete failure of self and something lightens. Thanks for joining me on the playground today. I will continue to share my personal journey and insights on mental illness and creating more space for both self-care and awareness. What is vital to me is that people know their story matters. People matter. And the key to better mental health is to value that the journey has so many different paths, lived by many different people, people you can't imagine, and people you can. Our stories matter. My next episode in the Patient Lens series 
Well, look at how I climbed out from that dark place and back into my life and the importance of building new foundations to support a different way of existing. Find your play and remind yourself and others that finding it and seeing it is a gift. At Amp to Play, we're transforming the way business, education, and healthcare develop authentic and sustainable diversity and inclusion programs and services. Connect with us at amptoplay.com to learn more. If your eight-year-old you could walk right up to you and ask you one question, just one question, what do you think he would say? Do you ever play anymore?